Amen. Thank you, praise team, for that wonderful reminder. He drowns our sin in seas of crimson. What a beautiful picture. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John this morning. We'll be continuing our study through the book of 1 John. 1 John, the very last verse of chapter 3, in, uh, on the way into chapter 4, verse 6, is where we'll be this morning. The title of this sermon, sermon is Testing and Trusting, that you and I are called to test and trust as we walk through uh, this life. See, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a prominent preacher who uh, taught something that was very interesting to his congregation. Uh, he made a claim about the Bible that I believe would fall into the category of heresy. He has essentially taught that the Old Testament is no longer necessary or essential to our faith. Uh, basically said this, and this is in some ways true, that the Old Testament was written for Jewish people, uh, it is founded in the Jewish religion. However, Christianity is founded in Jesus Christ. And that because of that, um, we are New Testament people. We are people that need the New Testament. We need the stories of how Jesus lived and worked. We need the writings of Paul. But we no longer necessarily need the Old Testament. The tragedy about this is that in many ways, I believe there are going to be lots of people who are led astray. Lots of people who will call God's word into question. And I think the question comes to us today as we think about this. um, How do we respond? How do we know when we're hearing good teaching versus wrong teaching? How do we understand um, when we're being led astray? In our passage this morning, John tells us to, quote unquote, test the spirits. And in just a little while, we will unpack what I believe John means by that statement. But to get us started today, I think we need to acknowledge this. We need to acknowledge that spiritual warfare is very real. Spiritual warfare is a very real thing. And if we choose to hide our heads under a rock and pretend that there is no such thing as spiritual warfare, what we do in those moments is actually hide from the truth of Scripture. Uh, Scripture tells us that spiritual warfare is real. Now, having said that, I would also say we don't have to be superstitious people. We don't have to be uh, looking for a demon or a devil behind every bush. We don't have to be overly concerned that every time we sin that it's from Satan. Uh, We have a sinful fallen nature, and so we sin ourselves. We are uh, a sinful people. But I do believe that we need to recognize the battlegrounds of spiritual warfare are many. And perhaps one of the, the least recognized battlegrounds of spiritual warfare is this idea of doctrine. This idea of good teaching versus false teaching. And so we're going to see um, what John has to say to us this morning in the book of 1 John. Go ahead and stand, and stand excuse me, in honor of the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 3, verses 24 through 4, 6. The word of the Lord says this, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Holy God, we come before you now, Father, and we do stop and thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the fact that your word pierces to the heart. God, that it convicts us of sin, that it shows us and teaches us how to live. Lord, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would keep us from a spirit of error. God, that you would please help us. Um, everything that happens at Riverview Baptist Church this morning, from the teachings that have already occurred in life groups, to the songs and the words that we sing, to the teaching that will happen here in this pulpit, God, that would come from a spirit of truth, your spirit. Father, we thank you that you're present in this place. We ask now that you would speak and that our hearts would be willing to listen in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the main idea this morning is that a sure faith will test the spirits and trust in the spirit. A sure faith will test the spirits while trusting in the one true spirit. Who is that spirit? That spirit is the Holy Spirit, right? That is the spirit of God that we receive upon the moment of salvation. Any person who turns away from their sins, trusts in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and follows him for their lives, receives the Holy Spirit. And I think what we need to do this morning then is look at this idea that we see in the first few verses in this section, uh, the end of verse 24, moving into verse 3 of chapter 4, is this, that John calls us to carefully and prayerfully test the spirits. John calls us to carefully and prayerfully test the spirits. What does that mean? I think in many ways this phrase might in some, at some point kind of catch us off guard a little bit. Uh, it might make us a little uncomfortable. How do I do that? What does that look like? What does it mean to test the spirits? Well, I want to be sure this morning to, to make this point that to test the spirits is actually the responsibility of every mature Christian. This is not something just for pastors. This is not something just for deacons or for elders. This is actually a call that John gives to every person who knows Jesus Christ in this room. We are called to do this. And so when John tells us test the spirits, we need to understand what is he talking about. I believe he's primarily talking about being willing to have a discerning heart, being willing to pay attention and seek out, is what I'm hearing true doctrine or false doctrine? Is what I'm hearing true teaching or false teaching? Is it true worship that I'm participating in or is it some sort of false worship? He's talking about, in many ways, being actually willing to part ways um, over doctrine at certain times. I want to be careful as I say that, but we know that this is what John's talking about because in chapter 2, as we've already studied in verse 19, he talks about that there were some people that were uh, in the body with him, and they said they went out of us because they never really were actually of us. They never actually knew Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and so they denied him. And so the reality is, yes, friends, we are called to be sweet. We are called to be kind. We are called to be marked by love. In fact, that's what we talked about last week, if you remember. But we are also called to be people of conviction. And so we're not going to, to ever experience a day or a time where we should uh, part ways over the color of the carpet. We're not ever going to experience a time where I don't believe that we should part ways over the style of music that happens here on a Sunday morning. But I do believe there are certain times that we should be willing to part ways over doctrine. And that doctrine primarily is the doctrine of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, of who Jesus is. And this is what we see happening here in John's church, that there are these people who denied that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We must remember what is at stake. When someone makes these kinds of claims, what is at stake is salvation. What is at stake is heaven and hell. What is at stake is following Christ obediently or opposing Christ. 
And so this is serious business that John is writing about. John is not alone, though, in calling us to test the spirits. In fact, the Apostle Paul does this at a couple of points in Scripture. The the first one I would direct your attention to is Ephesians chapter 4. In verses 11 through 14 in Ephesians 4, Paul is writing and he talks about some of the different offices of the church, that there are these uh, deacons and elders, there are apostles and prophets that have been given for the building up of the body. The building up of the body. And then he says this, so that we might be mature, not being tossed around by every wind of doctrine. Do you see that? So that we're not tossed to and fro. There's a new doctrine here. I guess I'm going to follow that. Well, there's a new doctrine over here. And so now I'll follow that. We are to be people of conviction. There should be a steadfastness that marks us as followers of Jesus Christ because we are willing to say this is of God and this is of not. This is not of God. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul actually tells us to test everything. It's a big command. Not only do we test the teachings that we hear, perhaps even the teaching you're hearing this morning, but we test the TV shows we watch. We test the music we listen to. We test the things around us. We test everything to see, does it honor Jesus Christ? And then Acts chapter 17 and verse 11. As Paul is on his missionary journeys, he stops at a place called Berea, and he meets the Berean people. And as he's there, he he finds something very fascinating. He finds something that he's actually encouraged by. And that is that the Berean people would receive Paul's message, and they did receive it, but then they didn't, didn't just accept it point blank. They took the time to compare it to the scriptures. And they are called noble for this. In fact, in the scriptures, they're called noble-minded. And so we are called, every one of us, to be people who are willing to test the spirits that we run into on a daily basis. So how do we do that? How do we discern what's from God and what's from the world? If that's the question this morning, I want to point us to to three different things, three different places that we can look to help us test the spirits. Uh, The first two places we're going to look are not necessarily authoritative, but I believe they can be helpful. The last place that we're going to look is the ultimate authority, okay? Uh, So three places I believe we can look. Number one, church history. Church history. We can look at church history to help us understand what is from God and what is is not. Why? How is that possible? Well, because of this. Heresies are not new. You see, there's nothing new under the sun is what the the book of Ecclesiastes actually tells us. And so uh, I think oftentimes as we're walking through life, we can be fooled into thinking that we're the first generation of Christians that have ever had to deal with something like this. Wrong. Christians throughout the centuries have endured persecutions, have endured trials, have identified false teaching, and have done so faithfully. And as a part of that family, we have the privilege of participating in that. We get to be a part of that legacy. So we can look to church history, and I'll give you a quick example. Again, we are not necessarily a people of creeds. We don't often read creeds in our worship services here at Riverview. But I believe that this can be a helpful thing. Written in 325, the Council of Nicaea, uh, there were some men who gathered together, and they were dealing with a heresy. They were dealing with the heresy of Arianism. And so they met, and they wrote this. I'm just going to read a couple of lines. It says this, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, all that is Seen and unseen, he is the maker of. And so we see this, that God is the Almighty Father. He is the maker of heaven and earth. You'd be hard-pressed to disagree with that statement and still be a Christian. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. There was never a time that Jesus did not exist. He has always existed. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made of one being with the Father. 
that Jesus Christ really was, in every sense of the word, God in the flesh. Again, if we deny that truth, if we deny that reality, uh, I would say it's very likely we don't know Jesus. Number three, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. Again, these, these words in this creed are not inspired. They're not authoritative, but I think they can be helpful. Even as we think about uh, the pastor that I mentioned earlier who denied uh, the, the necessity of the Old Testament. In this creed itself, it says that God has spoken through the prophets, the prophets in the Old Testament. So we can look to church history. Where's another place that we can look to help us as we're thinking about testing the spirits? I think another place we can look to is prayer. Prayer. What is prayer? It's a fascinating question. You ask that question, oftentimes you get a myriad of answers. What is prayer? Is prayer just asking God to fix our problems? I would say no. No, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, it doesn't start with us. It doesn't start with our problems. It doesn't start with give us this day our daily bread. It starts with who? Our Father, who art in heaven. And it starts with hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It starts with God. And so what is the purpose of prayer? I believe uh, uh, the way, a good way, a healthy way to think about prayer is ultimately that it is simply fellowship with the Father. That we are going and engaging our Heavenly Father. We are approaching Him as His children. And we have the joy and privilege of talking with Him and being in relationship with Him. What relationship do we just refuse to, to spend time in? If we do that, it's not a healthy one, Right? And so prayer, how does prayer help us as we test these spirits? How does that work? I would say uh, when, I, when I talk about prayer, we're not necessarily talking about this idea that we would run into a situation and we need some discernment. And right on the spot, we shoot up a prayer that says, Oh, Lord, give me wisdom right now to help me understand if this is discernment or not. Help me understand if this is from you or not. Give me, give me wisdom. That's not necessarily what I would talk about when I say prayer. I believe that God has given us prayer as a tool in our tool belt. And what we're talking about is concerted, daily, regular times of extended prayer with our Father. That we are with Him, and as we do that, He is, again, molding us more and more to the image of His Son. He is renewing our mind as we fellowship with the Father. He is filling us with His Spirit so that as we encounter it, we are becoming more and more mature in Him already. And we are more prepared to identify false teaching, false doctrine when it occurs. You see, the reality is, if I choose not to eat food, if I choose to go on a fast for some extended amount of time, I might be okay for a little while. Probably be grumpy, but I'll be okay. I might make it a few days. I might even go a few weeks. But at some point, friend, if I choose not to eat, I will become physically weak. I'll become sick. Eventually, if I don't eat, I'll die. In a similar sense, friends, if we choose not to pray, if we choose not to receive our daily bread from our Father, to spend time in His Word, to spend time with Him in prayer, if we choose not to fellowship with the author and giver of life, I believe we will become spiritually sick. We will become spiritually weak, and we will be much more susceptible to the deceit, to the schemes of the evil one. And so we need prayer. And I think these two things are helpful and good. These are gifts from God, church history. These are a gift from God when we look at prayer. But I want us to look now not at what is helpful, but ultimately what is the final authority. And that is God's word. 
John calls it in another place in this book, the word that which you have heard, the message which you have received. What is the message we have received? What is the word that we have heard? It's the teachings specifically that John has in mind of Jesus Christ, that John's saying, I'm not speaking necessarily of my own authority. The things that I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you because I'm an apostle. I saw Jesus. And so whatever authority I have is ultimately his. And in the same way, friends, we need to understand that the word is how we test the spirits. It is the ultimate authority. It is sufficient. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is enough to help us know how to live a life of godliness as we walk through this life. To neglect this truth is to be incredibly unwise, perhaps even to be innoble, unnoble, not noble. As we go back and we think about the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, they were called noble. Why? Because they examined the scriptures as they heard the teaching. That They are a model to you and to me today as we test the spirits. This is how we do that. I love this quote. I was at a conference and uh, John Piper was speaking and he said this. He said, um, if you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. I love that. If you want to hear God speak, read the Bible out loud. What's he saying? He's saying that what we have literally are the words of God. And so when we choose to act in any way that, that doesn't treat God's word that way, we're wrong. If I choose to just treat God's word like uh, some sort of reference book, I'm just going to open it up and I'm going to kind of flip around to the, the pages and things that make me feel good or help me uh, in my issues and my problems right here, right now. I would say we misuse and we misunderstand God's word to us. God has spoken and we do not stand over this text We submit to it. We yield to it because it is not just from men. It is his holy, inerrant, inspired word to you and to me. So how do we then consult God's word? And I just want to spend just a moment on this because I think it's so important. How do we consult God's word? If it is inspired, if it is inerrant, and we're not supposed to just kind of flip around and today I'm going to open up and I'm going to read out of Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Okay. If that's what we're not supposed to do, how do we treat God's word? How do we come to it? I believe that we are to use um, this idea that we want to understand the intent of the authors. That God used men to write this book, but as he used those men, those men were carried and moved by the Holy Spirit of God so that the words that ended up on this page were the exact words that God desired be here. Nothing more and nothing less. And so what we want to do then is to understand what was Paul saying as he wrote these books? What was John saying as he wrote 1 John? Rather than approaching it this way, see, I believe here's a spirit of error. How does this make me feel when I read this? What do I think it says? We have a responsibility to determine what these men meant because they were inspired by God. It would be just like if I were to write a letter to you. I would hope that if I were to write a letter to you, you would do me the courtesy of trying to figure out what I meant. If I said good day in the letter, you wouldn't take that as, a, as some sort of offensive language that I'm mad at you and it made you feel weird or made you feel uncomfortable. In the same way, we are to approach God's word with humility. And I think he's given us some tools. He's given us grammar, that we look at the grammar around the text to help us understand it. We look at the context. We look at what's being said around these verses if it's more difficult to understand what's being said. And then lastly, we can look at history. We look at grammar. We look at context. We look at history to help us determine what God intended, not what we want. So practically speaking, does what I'm hearing, 
Does what I'm seeing, does what I'm celebrating, does it actually fit with God's holy word? It's a question that we need to be asking regularly. Secondly, to borrow a phrase from our our previous pastor, who's the main character here? Who's the main character as we study, as you hear something being preached, as you hear something being taught? Is it people? Is it a person? Is it our emotions? Is it the way that it makes us feel? If this is the case, friends, then we're wrong. God is the main character of history. God is the main character in this book. And we are out of place. We are out of our element if we ever come to this text, if we ever come to a teaching and we hear that this is about us, this is about men, this is about our way, our emotions, our time. Does this make much of people or does it make much of Jesus? We must ask ourselves this. But I want to even, I guess, drill down a little further. How does this apply to us practically, okay? How do we actually take this and live it out? I think the number one thing is to recognize this. We need to recognize, friends, that false doctrine does not just come to us in the form of religious teaching. I think that's incredibly important. I'm going to say that one more time. That false doctrine, false teaching, does not just come to you and to me through religious teaching only. Here's what I mean by that. You see, we either look at life biblically or... We're allowing some other thing, some other authority to inform how we see our situation, how we understand ourselves, how we understand the world. Here's perhaps some more concrete examples. Parents. False doctrine comes in the form of TV shows and Disney movies. It does. And we need to be careful. Just because it looks innocent, we need to be wise and discerning as we watch these things with our children. Perhaps uh, have conversations. Let me give you an example. Disney says, follow your heart. God's word says your heart is deceitful above all else. Who can know it? You see, we're fallen. We're sinful people. My heart will lead me astray. It has led me astray. And so we need to have those conversations as we are walking through life with our children. We need to test the spirits. Teenagers, false doctrine comes in the form of music and movies. Music and movies that hold sex up as the absolute purpose of life, as the greatest good that you will ever get, are lies. It's a lie to you. You see, sex is a gift from God inside of the marriage relationship. It is good, but even then, it is not better than Jesus Christ. It is not more satisfying than Jesus. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? Adults, false doctrine comes in the form of political debates. Politics have now made it normal to spew anger and bitterness whenever we disagree politically. Just the other day, I started kind of counting how many times I'm going to read the word slam in the headlines of politics. So-and-so slams this person. So-and-so slams them back. Now they've been slammed again. Since when is it normal and okay and right and good to slam people? It's a part of who we are as a society today. We need to be careful that we're not following the false teachings and patterns of this world. You see, false doctrine comes in many forms. It's not just in religious teaching. We are called, friends, to love all people. We are called to love black people and white people and Democrats and Republicans. It doesn't mean that we can't disagree with people. We should and we do. Again, we are people of conviction. But when we disagree, we are called to disagree in a way that represents Jesus well. This is who we are called to be. So we need to recognize, again, false doctrine comes in many forms, but I also want us to see this. We need to recognize that what we celebrate demonstrates what we value. 
What we celebrate demonstrates what we value. That's an important thing in testing the spirits and helping us understand our hearts. Let's take the holidays, for example. They're coming quickly. Thanksgiving's just around the corner. Christmas, right after that, we just celebrated Halloween. How am I approaching the holidays? Let's take Halloween. Am I celebrating that in a way that says, I I make light and I make fun of death and darkness and demons? You see, before you write me off as a boring pastor, know that that my daughter was dressed up on Wednesday night too, okay? I'm not just some boring pastor that doesn't know how to have fun, but I do think we need to ask, what am I celebrating? Why am I celebrating that? There's nothing wrong with dressing up in a costume. I'm not condemning Halloween altogether, but I think we need to ask this question, why, if I am celebrating death and darkness and some of these things, why would I celebrate that when Jesus Christ died to set me free from that? Why would I do that? You see, it doesn't only apply to Halloween. Take another holiday. Let's take Christmas. When I celebrate Christmas, what am I excited about? Am I excited about presents and people and food and some days off of work? Or am I excited and looking forward to that day because it is the great reminder that God sent my Savior, His Son, into the world? And I'm looking at that day with a lens toward Easter, understanding Jesus came as a beautiful baby, and he came to die. He came not just to die, he came to die for you and me. Do I see that? Am I celebrating that? What we celebrate demonstrates what we value. We need to test the spirits around us. So not only do we need to carefully and prayerfully test the spirits, friends, I would also say this. Uh, Let's look at verses four through six. We need to continually trust the Spirit. We need to trust the Spirit of God. Let's read this together. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The point of these verses this morning is not just that you and I would have a litmus test to watch out for bad doctrine, okay? John does want us to have that. John does want us to have some tools to be prepared to identify bad teaching, false celebrations whenever we see it. But even more so, here's the point. He wants us to trust in the one true spirit. There's all kinds of distractions. There's all kinds of things around us to take our attention away from the only spirit that ultimately matters, the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus Christ. And so we need to look at this. I want us to see verse 4 again. I believe this is a key verse in this section. Look at 4.4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. Here we go. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. What a beautiful promise. What a beautiful promise. The heart of temptation, I think many times, is to trust ourselves. It's to trust ourselves that I'm greater than those out there in the world. That I can accomplish the things that I think need to be done today. Will I trust me or will I trust the God who can save? Think back to Eden. Think back to the original sin. In many ways, again, I believe it was a failure to trust. After Eve had said what was true, if I eat of this fruit, I will surely die. What does Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say that? Who are you going to trust, Eve? Are you going to trust yourself or perhaps me? Or are you going to trust God? Who will you follow 
this day. And see, just as Eve was given a promise, it was a promise in the garden. It was a warning, but it was a promise. If you eat, you will surely die. Friends, today, you and I are given a promise. And if you're a per- person who highlights in your Bible, I would recommend highlighting the back half of 4.4. The promise is this, that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world today. Do you believe that? Do you trust that? You see, I think we need to, to look and consider this question very carefully because I think the question that rings in our minds right after we hear that is this, how is that true? How is it really true that greater is he who is in me than he who's in the world? Is God greater than the hurts that I carry this morning? Is he greater than a failed career? Is God greater than the cancer? Is he greater than the pain of my broken marriage? Is he greater than the loss of a loved one? Friends, we need to remember that this sacred book that we hold, this sacred book that we claim to trust, this sacred book that we claim to live by, are not just fairy tales. This book is a written record of the working of God. It is the record of his moving throughout history. It is the recording of his power to save again and again and again and again. How is he greater? See, he's the father of Abraham who promised a 100-year-old man that he would have a son who would become the father of nations. And he delivered on that promise. He's the I am who met Moses at the burning bush. He's the conqueror who crushed the gods of Egypt and consumed the armies of Pharaoh with one wave. He's Jehovah Rapha, who healed his people in the desert. He's Jehovah Jireh, who provided bread from heaven in the wilderness when the people would have starved without him. How is he greater, you ask? He's the one who used a shepherd boy to kill a giant when there were grown men who were shaking in their boots. How is he greater? You see, he's the gentle whisper who met Elijah on Mount Horeb when his heart was broken. He's the God who walked through the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he will walk through the fire with you today. He's the silencer of lions who rescued Daniel from the den of death. He's the giver of life who raised dry bones for Ezekiel. How is he greater, you ask? He's the one who set his face like flint toward Calvary for you and for me. He's the one who heals us with his stripes. He's the one who the grave could not hold. He's the one who death could not keep. He's the one whose name causes demons to shudder and flee, even to this day. He's the one for whom every knee will bow. Yeah. He is our living hope. He is the one who sets us free from sin and sorrow. His name is Jesus Christ. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Do you believe that, Christian? That's our hope. That is who God calls us to be. And that is what sets us apart from the world around us. We are called, John calls us, do you see it? He calls us to trust a greater God. He calls us to hold on to a bigger hope, a better hope. And so the first part of verse 4, we don't become overcomers in and of ourselves. We don't overcome in our own strength. We don't overcome in our own right. We don't overcome in our own way. The weight of this world really will crush you, friend, if you go at it on your own. But because of Jesus Christ... 
because of everything that I just shared with you a moment ago and because of a thousand things more, he's mighty to save. And we can overcome because we are children of the overcomer. And so, friends, I am here to to just ask you this morning, do you trust him? Do you trust him? You see, this is why John closes in verses 5 and 6 by saying that the people of this world don't listen to him. Why does he include that idea? Why is he saying that? John is saying, ultimately, again, I'm not speaking this to you in my own power. I'm not speaking this to you in my own strength. What I'm saying to you, I'm saying on the authority of Jesus Christ, and he is enough. Flesh and and blood will last only 70 years on this planet. This planet will last, outlast us. A fallen world will outlast us. Sin will outlast us. Heartache will outlast us, but it will not outlast the power of Jesus Christ. And so we're either listening to him and we're trusting those truths, or we're listening to something out there. Who are you listening to today? I just want to read this as we close. It's a favorite hymn of mine. Tis so sweet. It says this. Listen to this. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word. Just to rest upon his promise. Just to know the saith the Lord. If Jesus said it, it's enough. Yes, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just from sin and self to cease. Just from Jesus simply taking life and love and joy and peace. Need some more of that today? I know I do. I'm so glad I learned to trust him. Precious Jesus, Savior, friend. Here it is. Listen. And I know that he is with me. Will be with me till the end. That's our hope. That's what marks us as believers. That is who we are called to be. And we are called to live it out for the world to see out there. Who do you trust today? Let's pray together. Holy God.